Hi, it's Chad Griffiths. I'm the host of the Industrial Real Estate Show, and I'm glad you're here. After you listen to it, please consider leaving a review on our Apple or Spotify page and check out any more episodes to see how you can learn more about the industrial real estate market. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I am very excited for this week's guest because we're going to talk about something we haven't addressed on this show before, and that's industrial outside storage. And my guest is Tim Bishop. He's the founder and CEO of Iconic Equities, and this is their space. He's an expert in the space. They follow this very closely. They're invested in it. And we're going to ask some some questions and get some more insight on exactly what industrial outdoor storage is uh, and how you can consider adding it to your portfolio as well. Uh, so with that, Tim, great to chat with you again, and thanks for joining me on the show. Hey, thanks so much for the opportunity, Chad. Really excited to be here. Yeah, and likewise. And and the last time we we spoke, uh, we had a great chat about industrial outdoor storage, and I wish we would have recorded that episode because we had such an awesome discussion on it. I'm just going to try and uh, extract as much uh, from you in regards to that last conversation we had so that other people can hear from it as well. Yeah, it's look, it's definitely an emerging uh, strategy, you know, within the confines of traditional industrial. Um, but there's a lot of nuances involved. And since, you know, it's kind of in the second or third inning, a lot of people, uh, especially the sophisticated institutional investors, uh, you know, they need to get up to speed on the strategy first and what those nuances are. And once they're kind of equipped with that knowledge, then they're, you know, capable of figuring out if it's a fit for them. And that's exactly what I want to get your insights on. So maybe we could even just start there on what industrial outdoor outside, maybe I said earlier, industrial outdoor storage, what exactly is it? Yeah, I mean, it's really low coverage industrial. So how we classify it typically within our programmatic venture is sub 30% lot coverage. Uh, and that's kind of based on the FAR, the property. So the warehouse takes up less than 30%. So usually what it translates into is trailer parking, uh, excess acreage, uh, pallet storage, heavy equipment rentals, um, container storage near the ports. Uh, it's just, it's a multitude of um, uses, but what it really is, is low coverage industrial, whether it has a building on it or not, and, you know, it could be a traditional, uh, just a drop lot uh, where it's really just a parking lot. That, that qualifies as well. Um, I'm seeing improvements be more and more popular, you know, having some sort of warehouse on the property, just a little bit more financeable during tough financing times that I think everyone can relate to. So um, that's kind of what it looks like. And the markets that you're typically seeing this be most popular in are the high barrier to entry markets, the port markets. Uh, you know, it's really strong labor pools, uh, intermodal access, uh, big ports, fast growing ports, you know, Los Angeles, Long Beach, Savannah, Charleston, uh, Port of Newark, North Jersey is a really big iOS uh, market, uh, Atlanta, Dallas, uh, those are, you know, pretty big iOS markets. And those are the ones that really we focus on the most, the Bay Area as well. I find it very fascinating because obviously land has been around forever and industrial land has, there's always been surplus industrial land that maybe somebody owns and they had it 
earmarked for development at some point down the road and they just decided to do a short-term lease until they were ready or as a company that like you said maybe that a low site coverage ratio and they leased out some surplus land but it's now getting into the mainstream from the standpoint that it's institutionalized and there's investors like yourself that that is your mission is to go and buy uh, industrial land for the sole purpose of leasing it out. So I want to explore a few things on that because I've got some familiarity having done some land lease leasing in the past, but not to the degree where I've ever considered it, or even anyone that I've spoken to has considered it as an investment strategy in itself. So for those that, that are curious about it, I, I think the next questions that they would ask is, what does the tenant profile look like and what do the lease terms look like? So maybe we could start with the tenant profile. Are you seeing these as, as do you find large companies that are doing this? Like is it a big three PL leasing a few acres for trailer storage, as, as you mentioned, or are these small local companies or is it everything in between? Yeah, it really depends on the market, the location and how big of a site it is. Obviously if we're talking like, three miles outside the port of Long Beach, you're probably talking about a pretty well capitalized 3PL. Uh, it could be Amazon uh, leasing out surplus three acres to run that coterminous with their warehouse lease a couple blocks away. Uh, or they could just be leasing it out because it's a critical part of their supply chain. And I think that since parking has become less and less available because there was such a big warehouse boom in the last five years or so, that a lot of these uh, core gateway markets have gotten all built up and they've traditionally tried to maximize FAR in order to maximize returns. And that sacrificed a lot of the parking needs for a lot of the three PLs and distribution focused tenancy and e-commerce companies and the like. So what it's led to is the leasing community and the tenants are totally on board with this is bifurcating out uh, parking rent uh, from warehouse rent. So if I go and I buy a 100,000 square foot warehouse and I decide that traditional FAR in this market is 40%, then, and it you know sits on uh, 10 surplus acres beyond that 40% coverage, I'm going to either lease that 10 acres out, uh, just say it's in, um, North Jersey, for instance, I would say that rent would probably be 30,000 uh, triple net per acre on those 10 surplus acres aside from the building rent. And that's either going to get charged to that tenant or that's going to get charged to uh, a separate tenant who's just looking for that to be a part of their supply chain. Very interesting. So I guess that leads to the, to the next question on lease terms. And, and I'm assuming based on, like you mentioned, the market's they differ and the tenant profile differs, but are you finding that companies are only looking for short-term solutions for those yard or, or by strategy, are you pursuing only the tenants that want to enter into a longer term lease? Correct. Yeah. So what I would say is that the term has gotten longer and longer as the strategies become more institutional and more widely accepted as a critical part of the tenant supply chain. So yeah, what we're seeing right now is typically three to 10 years. You know, we're really looking for like five to seven, I would say. Uh, we're in a value add programmatic strategy. So I would say five to seven years is great because we're going to aggregate over a three year period probably. 
and then sell the sell or recap the portfolio, you know, in years four or five. And since the rent growth dynamic has been so um, substantial the last few years, I think, you know, your next capital group wants a little juice left. So that's typically what you're seeing get the most aggressive cap rate in today's environment is the, you know, more return on cost buyers are looking to hedge their inflation bets and saying, hey, like, I'm not as focused on cap rate, although I will say that there are a lot of groups that are pushing back on negative leverage right now. So uh, maybe that uh, changes a little bit. But for the last couple of years, people have been way more return on cost focused than uh, going in cap rate focused. So having a five to seven year uh, you know, term that you're signing. And then when you go to exit that deal in three years, there's a, a short term lull and your, your value add buying pool, which is pretty much everybody, um, you know, they're looking for that mark to market. When you're looking at a site, how do you forecast your exit strategy in terms of the, is the next buyer going to continue operating that as outdoor storage or is it future development land that you're just looking to capitalize on the demand for that that yard until the development catches up that it makes sense for someone to develop it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I would say, look, Prologis has been pretty vocal about shooting for covered land plays right now. You're seeing a lot of the really well capitalized unlevered buyers jump on covered land plays so that they can clip a little coupon for a couple of years and then go ground up at a reasonable basis uh, in these really strong markets and they don't have to deliver in the middle of a recession. So um, what I would say is most of the time it's highest and best use. I usually game plan for it being highest and best used. You know, typically we're looking for a particular return on costs, whether that's a 7% uh, at stabilization in a gateway market and an eight probably in today in a, in the secondary markets, um, that's really highest and best use to us. If it's a really good site and it's, uh, you know, got the right parcel shape, if it's a good uh, rectangle, maybe it could be a truck terminal down the road. Maybe it could be a 120,000 square footer uh, in a gateway market. Uh, you know, what's great about this strategy is that the leasing costs and the improvement costs are typically very low so you can keep that basis very low so if it's a if it's a really strong site from an access perspective and a market perspective if it's in close proximity to port that can absolutely be a warehouse development you know three four five years down the road do you put any provisions in your lease that you have a unilateral ability to terminate if you sense an opportunity for that you know, we haven't had to yet because our base case is just industrial outdoor storage for these sites. We're just trying to lease it, stabilize it. You know, I think when it comes time to sell the portfolio or recap the portfolio a few years down the road, uh, that could be a conversation. But we're not, you know, uh, prelim, you know, going into a lease thinking like, hey, we're gonna, you know, knock these guys out. Um, you know, we, we, we really want to maximize value, uh, curate a strong tenant mix in our portfolio and, you know, keep, keep these tenants in there for as long as possible and, and really maximize our yields rather than, uh, you know, game plan for a ground up. Yeah. I suppose that the outlook on that is, is a bonus. If the land, if the development 
game catches up to that land and there's high demand to buy and develop that's just a bonus but you're making your strategy on the basis that you're looking for strong markets good access uh, every, everything that a normal uh, purchaser would be looking at but your sure. game plan is it, you could hold those indefinitely uh it, under the premise that as long as there's tenants to lease land you're going to be a provider of it correct and what i would say is that since it's become such a hot strategy recently, we haven't really seen it be um, at a correct land basis that would make sense for ground up development today. Um, it, it, you're usually a little bit above that where it's like, hey, like we would be, if we were going to go ground up on this today, it probably wouldn't pencil. So highest and best use for the next three to five years is industrial outdoor storage. When you talk about improvements, just going back a, a few minutes to the comment that you made, what typically are you seeing uh, that that tenants require or what you're just proactively doing before you even find a tenant in terms of preparing that site? Yeah, yeah. Um, typically, it's like a 10 or a 15,000 square foot maintenance or security shack. That's pretty much it. And then and then mostly um, just paving, lighting, and fencing. Uh, that's probably your most basic out, uh, outline of what it looks like. Um, but, you know, like we're buying a site this week, closing in, on Friday, hopefully, uh, that's got a 50,000 square foot building and some surplus acres. Uh, that could end up being one tenant for the whole property or that could end up being two tenants. So um, that's, that's, that's what's good about the strategy is that there is a lot of optionality and you can accommodate a variety of different tenant uses because, um, you know, for instance, that, that building might be a distribution user, but the, uh, the land could be a contractor's yard. Uh, so what we're thinking is that, you know, that's going to help us maximize that yield. And, you know, that's in a Midwest market over in Columbus. And, you know, the yield is definitely quite a bit higher than what we've seen in the gateway markets. So, um, you know, we're seeing kind of this unique strategy to buy some of these opportunities from some non-institutional sellers who really aren't just thinking that way from a leasing perspective. Uh, they're just thinking, oh, this is going to be one tenant. And, you know, that's that. Uh, we're seeing where we can really maximize our return on costs, you know, an opportunity for that. Yeah, you're right. I don't think a lot of people are considering uh, having land and trying to find tenants for it. They they probably it probably an afterthought if anything, as opposed to that's the strategy that you guys are going after. Uh, when you mentioned that you pave the sites, are, are you asphalt paving them, or are you just putting down gravel, or how are you preparing those yards? Yeah, it's pretty market specific. Um, you know, it's gonna it's gonna range on on how much money you want to put in if you're gonna get the rents on the other side. If it makes sense for that market, like I know if you're in like you know certain parts of Atlanta, you're just gonna do crushed gravel and call it a day, um, you know, or Savannah. But if you're in like you know two miles outside of like the Port of Long Beach, or if you're in you know the Inland Empire where we recently bought a site, you know, it's gonna be as class A as you can make it, uh, you know, concrete and all that. So, um, yeah, it really d does depend on what your uh, return on investment is going to be on, on, on what kind of materials you use. 
and you're just building that all into your pro forma uh, anyways, right? Whether you have an expense line item for gravel or for concrete, you're just building that into your into your acquisition cost and what you think you'll get in, in rent to build your model, I'm assuming. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's not rocket. So like if, if, if that's kind of the norm for the market and that's, what's going to command, you know, higher rent and that's kind of the standard against your competition, um, then, you know, you're definitely going to want to go that route. And then also sometimes some of these municipalities, and I'm sure we can have a whole discussion about, you know, the municipalities and what, where they um, get involved in this strategy, but you know, sometimes they have beautification standards um, that you need to adhere to. So uh, that could dictate some of the materials that you use or the, you know, masonry, the, the walls that you put up and all that kind of stuff, the fencing. So um, it really does depend on deal to deal. And that's what I would say is most arduous about this strategy is it is extremely nuanced. Like no deal is similar to the other one because every individual deal you need to, you know, ensure that you have the proper zoning on that site and you need to really dig on that front. You know, you need a local um, zoning council that can sign off on it and you, you know, have to go in and figure out exactly what the history of this site is within the confines of the municipal code and see how friendly they are because they are definitely and absolutely pushing back. They do not want uh pure truck parking in their neighborhoods it increases congestion it doesn't create um you know jobs to the degree that office or uh traditional industrial would um so it just doesn't have this big benefit and they're, they're very against it uh, especially in southern california uh, but why we're so drawn to the strategy is it creates this immense barrier to entry that makes your site so much more valuable. Uh, it just makes us really selective on the front end uh, and we have to expend a lot of time and energy on the front end. So that just kind of makes our platform a little bit more um, nuanced and, and skilled in this strategy. Um, and, you know, we're, we're getting better with it over time. You know, we didn't get into this as, you know, these, it, it, what I will say is a lot of this stuff you learn you know, a little bit on the fly because uh, these municipalities all have their own sets of, you know, rules and stuff. So um, that you have to adhere to. So you're learning a lot of that stuff through, through the zoning councils. Yeah, it's such a good point. And even just looking at the broader industrial market, there's, there's not really a textbook on how you can just go in and start buying industrial property. A lot of it, you do have to learn on the go. And when you're getting as niche down as, as you are, then you're definitely having to uh, carve a new path uh, for everybody out there. I, and I, I love the point that you made and emphasize that every municipality is going to treat their zoning regulations and ordinances a little bit differently. And I can't underscore how important that is because as someone can imagine that if they go and buy a parcel of land and they don't go through that due diligence and they find a tenant and then the tenant goes to get their, their their business license or occupancy permit or whatever municipality language they use, and the municipality shuts them down. Well, that that could that could be devastating for an investor. So I, I think it's incumbent on people to to do that. I, and I want to explore that a little bit more, just on on the time on that and and the process. And again, understanding that every municipality is going to be different. 
but how how do you account for that do you just make that a condition of any property that you that you go under contract with that you need to get that approval from the municipality that they'll grant you uh, the ability to lease it yeah so we try to take you know at this juncture uh in the market we're trying not to take like site plan risk or zoning risk so we're diligencing that all up front and you know we've got a team of experts and consultants involved in that process uh whether it's local permit expediters or local zoning council um you know there's certain things that um are somewhat universal like if you have a conditional use permit for instance a cup um, is what they call it uh that runs with the land that means that uh if i go buy a site and it has that cup in place that includes truck parking like even if i go buy the site that can't be reversed like that will carry over into the new ownership uh so we're very cognizant of the stuff that our next buyer is going to be considering uh, because the one thing that you can't have in this strategy, like you mentioned, is a lapse uh, or a bad zoning read. Um, you know, there is always, you know, what uh, might make you even a little bit more apprehensive about the strategy is that uh, they could reverse uh, <laughs> the, the municipal code. So you could have trailer parking. It's totally approved. Everything's all good. And then they change their minds after you buy the site uh, and rewrite the zoning code. So we're very cognizant of that in Southern California because they're putting moratoriums in place, not just on industrial outdoor storage, but also on industrial development. Uh, you know, they don't even want warehouses in their neighborhoods. So uh, when there's markets like that, we spend a lot of time uh, on the on, on the upfront stuff. And uh, you know, we we've almost had a close call. Thank God, you know, we've uh, never had a major issue. But uh, I know some of the extremely well capitalized groups have had that happen to them. And these are guys that are about as institutional as it gets, uh, that have had bad zoning reads, or they've had municipal codes reversed on them, you know, the zoning code uh, rewritten. So, uh, you know, that really has an impact on value, as you can imagine. Yeah, it's it's definitely not for the faint of heart to, to, to go into the space. But like you said, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about it, but people need to understand that that downside risk too. Uh, speaking of of the risk uh, from a property level risk, what other due diligence are you doing on the site? Yeah, um, and I'm definitely not the the due diligence expert uh, from our team. Uh, we've got a guy named Ty that uh, was formerly at Prologis, who is really you know our expert on that uh, front. But he, you know, I'm pretty plugged in throughout the process. I know that environmental is a uh, very, very important, and you know we try to navigate that, um, you know, through council and see if there's a way around it or if you know it's kind of a non-starter of a transaction. Um, that I would say those are your two biggest hurdles uh, in these transactions are are zoning and and environmental, and then from there it's just assessing functionality. Because what I think is so important about this, it's not like looking at warehouse comps where you're like, okay, well, here's a, you know, a list of like what we used to do, you know, here's the list of the 50,000 square foot uh, leases that have been signed, you know, okay, I do, I'm buying a, a hundred thousand square foot building. It's going to be a two tenant asset. Uh, this is what I can reasonably expect. Um, and, you know, we can assess like what the uh, development pipeline looks like in that submarket and um, how many tenants are in the market that are actively looking for 50,000 square feet. 
it's not like that in iOS. Like mm-hmm. it, you can't really, it's, it's tough. Like assessing demand is very anecdotal. Um, data is very hard to come by. And, you know, that's why I think we've, we've, we've done pretty well in the space or at least uh, built a good foundation and positioned us for future success in the space is like, I'm plugged in with every institutionally backed uh, iOS group in the country. There's no one that I haven't spoken with. So, um, you know, that is really important for having somewhat of an edge in this space because, you know, the brokers, you know, have some data, but it is nothing like industrial uh, warehouse development where you have like, you know, all this data to go off of and you can reasonably expect to, to lease up at this rate. It's like, if you're not plugged into that submarket and know all of your competitors and what's being delivered and where rents are really coming in and where RFPs are really coming in, um, then you could really get burned. So assessing functionality is probably the third thing that I would say is really important because no two sites are alike. You know, you might have a uh, triangular shaped site that might not be as uh, functional for, you know, a 3PL because uh, you're not going to get uh, as many trailer spaces per acre. Uh, that's where you can get a discount on the rents. So you have to appropriately underwrite that compared to the comp down the street that's more rectangular and more efficient of a site. Uh, so that's definitely something we're, we're super cognizant of. And we've gotten more and more cognizant of it over time. Yeah, that's a really good point. And in the the limited experience I have in that space, I also found that there's different terms uh, that greatly influence the value. Like it might be a company that only needs, maybe it's a construction company doing a large municipal project and they only need a site for two months while a property owner might charge them a premium for the only that short period. So that further distorts the limited amount of information that's out there because you're trying to say, okay, well, if I have this called a 10 acre site, and I'm just trying to figure out what what it's worth. Well, if one comparable was showing you that uh, it was X amount, but it was a two month lease, and you're trying to forecast for a five year lease, it makes it even more challenging to come up with those values. Oh, a hundred percent. And it's like a favors game, you know. Like I feel like we're always in the market, like trading comps, you know, with different brokers or different landlords, just trying to figure out so that we we don't have a bad rent read. You know, that's our that's the most important thing. And it's, it's even gone a step further where we've incorporated a part of our process being like, okay, if we're going into contract with this site, let's go get leasing opinions, you know, from the various groups um, and see exactly what they think this exact site would lease out at, not just like what uh, leases are going for in the South submarket of uh, Atlanta, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, you, you know, you can't be general here. We try to get like very specific and very granular and take into account like everybody's opinion uh, because a lot of people see different things and that allows you to make a really educated guess rather than, you know, just guesstimating because I see a lot of groups, you know, they end up buying these sites at big basis because they hear that like, um, you know, a dollar, like one, one comp got done at 48000 you know, dollars triple net per acre in Newark. Now everybody thinks that that's where the market is when the reality is that comp was like literally on the port, like the most class A site that ever existed, maybe in the country. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it, you know, you really like have to know your individual comps um, and how they stack up against your site. Um, is your site paved, lit and fenced? 
Um, you know, is it properly improved? Um, you know, there's so many nuances uh, that can distinguish between a class A uh, site and a class B site. And there's not a lot of class A sites out there because uh, that's something, you know, another trend that we're seeing as, as times have gotten a little bit tougher is that most institutionally backed groups do not want to do iOS development uh, for a couple of different reasons. A, a lot of the iOS deals are like 10, 15 million bucks. You know, nobody wants to go ground up and take site plan risk and, you know, uh, like basically do a ground up project on, on a 10 or $15 million deal. It just doesn't, you know, it's, uh, it's just not worth it, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how arduous it is on your, on your team. So, uh, you, you don't see a lot of class A new development iOS. It's a lot of the just existing product. And that's kind of the trend that we're seeing out there is people are gravitating towards cash flowing assets because they're a bit more financeable. People are gravitating towards improvements, you know, low coverage, not just plain lots. Uh, and we're also seeing uh, people gravitating towards positive leverage. Uh, and that is something that is becoming more important to people, you know, across real estate, really, you know, during times like this. Yeah, a, a ton there. And what, one thing that really jumps out to me, and, and I'm, I'm assuming anyone that listens as well, is that it, it, you've taken what seems to be like a, a pretty straightforward sub-asset class of just being industrial land and really broken it down to how complex and, and nuanced it can be where where someone uh, that hadn't given it a whole lot of thought probably would have just thought one site in Texas is going to be very similar to a site in uh, in Georgia when in reality there's so many variables that go into it so it, it really is a a topic that someone needs to jump into pretty deeply before they're prepared to commit any money on that uh, I, I, on the point about financing, you said that uh, that's obviously a big part right now. We're in a rising interest rate environment, and there's clearly stress and pressures that come with that. How have you found banks in general to to deal with either from just a perspective of of how their lending approaches or how they approach uh, outdoor uh, storage specifically? Yeah, no, and I'm glad that, um, you know, we're recording this so I can, you know, listen to it later, like six months from now and see how hopefully things have started to normalize again. Um, but right now, I mean, that's why people are kind of anti-vacancy uh, uh, because the lending rate is like eight, nine, 10% <laughs> all in and you're getting like 50% leverage uh, on vacant property. Uh, but then if it has improvements and it's leased out, it could be, uh, you know, 6% or high fives or something at like 60% leverage. So it's just like vast. It's, it's, it's like getting, you know, a hard money loan on or a bridge loan when it's vacant uh, because it gets treated like land. Um, you know, it's not like you're buying a, a vacant warehouse and, and, and leasing that up. So the credit markets haven't fully caught up to the strategy yet. They were it felt like they were kind of on the cusp of, uh, you know, getting it. But then obviously uh, we had a big interest rate hike the last, uh, you know, six months or so. And uh, cap rates have expanded, you know, a bunch. So uh, they are definitely, you know, uh, discounting it significantly from where warehouse debt would be. Hmm. 
So what's what's kind of your general outlook right now? Because you you said that you want to listen back on the six months, and I do that all the time with with predictions that I make, and some I'm way off, and some I'm surprisingly accurate on. Uh, so with the with the context that neither one of us have a crystal ball, what's your just general outlook for the next call it six to eighteen months? Yeah. So I mean, look, like this strategy is rapidly institutionalizing. I think it's only going to get stronger and more institutional, similar to the dynamic of single family rentals and self-storage and stuff that, you know, historically was very fragmented and non-institutional because the groups that are involved now in this space are very sophisticated. Um, You know, some of the groups, I mean, that you could mention JP Morgan, LaSalle, um, you know, there's some of the biggest uh, private equity shops in the game. So uh, when it trends that way, you're going to start to see some big core takeout buyers as well. Um, so I, I, I don't think that the institutionalization of it is slowing down anytime soon. So, but what I would say is that these groups are very smart and, you know, we're institutionally backed and we kind of feel the same way. Uh, that the next three to six months at least are going to be very choppy. So we're very, very selective. Like the returns have to be like jumping off the page, uh, comparatively speaking, uh, in order for us to transact in the next three to six months. Uh, We're finding opportunities that do jump off the page. So we've been a little fortunate, um, but we're just kind of taking it day by day uh, on that stuff because the market is rapidly changing. But I, I personally, and maybe this is just me being optimistic, uh, I think there's going to be a, a phenomenal buying opportunity six to nine months from now when these things are truly appropriately discounted and that bid to ask spread starts to uh, narrow a little bit. So we're not rushing into any deals right now. Anything that we're doing right now is like substantially more appetizing than it would have been three to six months. So if we were underwriting like mid to five high, mid to high fives return on cost in gateway markets, now we want to be like north of a seven. Uh, and it feels like that's a pretty safe place for, you know, and that's untrended without any rent growth, not to give away our trade secrets, but uh, you know, I think that everybody kind of has the same calculator on that front. Um, and that's just kind of where we're at. And, October of 2022. And, you know, we're starting to see that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I think that it's only going to get better. Um, But, you know, it's not the only strategy that we do, you know, we're developing warehouses and buying warehouses, you know, around the country. So, um, you know, we've hedged our bets because it is an alternative asset class. So you really have to monitor it every, every few months and see, you know, which direction it's going in. Uh, so far, you know, uh, rents have not come down uh, like they have in some other asset classes. It's still an extremely high conviction strategy for groups that have allocations in every May. I mean, you talk to JP Morgans of the world or, you know, groups of that ilk, like it's a high conviction strategy for them. And they're in multi-office uh, retail, you know, office is the least financeable asset class right now. Uh, retail starting to do a little bit better. Uh, multi just has this massive bid to ask spread, it feels like. And I'm not in any of those asset classes. We're just an industrial, but that still feels to me to be the most transactable uh, right now out of all the asset classes. So we're, uh, you know, we also do, you know, light industrial and, and ground up class A, big box stuff. So, uh, you know, we try to spread it out a little bit. 
But do you have I any iOS is our primary strategy? That's for sure. Do you have any uh, favorite markets right now, or do you just look at opportunities as they come up? Yeah, yeah. So I would say favorite markets right now. I mean, look, like you know, the global economy. I mean, I don't think any of us have a crystal ball, you know, during what happens in recessionary times, but. I and, you know, a lot of other groups feel that uh, you're most insulated in those gateway markets that are high barrier to entry that have extremely low vacancy rates. Uh, that's where you feel the safest. So I would say that we're most focused on the Inland Empire, uh, Los Angeles, North Jersey, Central Jersey, uh, South Florida, um, uh, Bay Area, uh, Seattle a little bit. Um, and then also Atlanta, Dallas, uh, Columbus. Columbus is, is really the only Midwest market that we're focused on right now. Look, it's still sub 1% vacancy, I think, on the warehouse front. So uh, we're closing on a site there uh, this week, hopefully, knock on wood. Um, and, you know, it's been one of the primary beneficiaries and it's had a lot of uh, uh, positive momentum from Intel and a lot of chip manufacturers. So we do have a lot of conviction in that market. Uh, but aside from that, we're pretty uh, coastal gateway market focused. Hmm. Well, good luck on the uh, acquisition this week. I knocked on some wood for you. So hopefully that <laughs> that one closes. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to pick up this conversation like six months down the road and we can reflect back on on how crazy or maybe how smooth the waters were uh, over the next coming six months because uh, like you I have no crystal ball uh, but I, I think uh, just a good sound strategy is having a game plan and executing on it and it's there's always going to be these short-term aberrations which uh, seem much bigger uh, at the time but when you look back on it, like even even to me, like 2008, 2009 was a crazy time. But I look back on it now and, and it doesn't seem nearly as scary as it was when you heard like Lehman collapsing and all this stuff. Like at that time, it seemed so scary. But you look back on it now and, and you're like, well, it was two years and we all came out ahead on it. So I, I, I wonder what the next six months or maybe it's two years uh, look like. But I'd love to have you back on and, and we can either reminisce about how how smart we were or we can loathe and, and maybe we're still in the recession. But uh, if you're up for it, I'd love to continue the conversation. Yeah, look, I'd love that. And, you know, that's the thing is like, it's not forever. So now's the time to focus on leasing and execution and uh, just be really selective about your investments um, and then just, you know, hopefully be ready to, uh, to start up the next buying cycle, uh, which hopefully is coming up soon. And, uh, you know, I think if you look back historically, like the best deals that were bought were probably like 2010, 11, 12. So not too there too, too long thereafter. Um, so if you can get access to, to capital and figure out that part, there's definitely going to be a lot of great opportunities, uh, coming up here over the course of the next couple of years. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, uh, what are the best ways if people just want to learn more about Iconic or learn more about you? What's the best way for uh, people to reach out or website to go to? Uh, our website is www.iconicequitiesgroup.com. And then we have uh, our iOS website too. It's iconicios.com. And that'll give our acquisition criteria. If any of the brokers out there want to send us some deals, we'd love to work with you guys. We're extremely broker friendly. That's 
how we get stuff done. I don't think we've ever done a, tr a direct transaction, probably never will, uh, maybe. Um, but for now, we like to, you know, just constantly uh, work with the brokerage community and scale up that way. So uh, that's that's kind of our contact info. Um, and my email is tim at iconicequitiesgroup.com. If you guys ever want to chat with me about industrial outdoor storage uh, or look at deals with us, we, we're, we, we're, we're an open book. So thanks uh, for giving us the opportunity today to chat with you, Chad. Yeah, well, th thanks so much for sharing your insights. And I'll put uh, those websites in your email in the show notes uh, so people can uh, access that pretty easily as well. And I really do appreciate you sharing uh, so much wisdom insight on that, uh, Tim. I learned I learned a lot myself, so I really do uh, thank you for taking the time to jump on this with me. Hey, thanks so much. Really a, a big fan of your podcast. Would love to be back. Oh, I'll, I'll send you an invite to uh, tee something up for like March, April uh, of 2023. That'd be great. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks again, Tim. Good luck on the acquisition. Hope it closes for you and look forward to the next chat. All right, my man. Have a good one. Okay. You too. Thanks, Tim. I hope you got some value from that episode. I always enjoy getting to speak with these guests. Again, if you got any value from this, please leave a review on our Apple or Spotify page and look to catch you in the next episode.